You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. We're in our 12th, oh no, 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 excuse me, 13th week uh, going through the book of Acts. If you're new to Rev Church, uh, maybe you're visiting Uh, What we like to do at this church about 90 to 95% of the time is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We feel like that is the best way to study Scripture corporately together. And uh, today is the second week that we are going to look at one of the early deacons, one of the first deacons that was appointed in Acts chapter 6. We're going to take a look at Philip the Evangelist. He's really been promoted from Acts 6 from deacon, not that it's more important to be an evangelist or deacon, but he's been promoted from deacon to evangelist. And we talked about last week about how Philip goes to Samaria. And really what we got a picture of last week was mass evangelism. He preaches to hundreds, if not thousands of people and tons of people get saved. Uh, And today what we're going to see is a picture of Philip doing one-on-one evangelism. Both those are legitimate ways to evangelize. Many people would say mass evangelism, we got to have crusades and pack out stadiums. That's a great way to do it, okay? Uh, It's not an either or, it's a both and. Some people say, no, 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 the only way to evangelize is one-on-one. In scripture, we see both different ways. Last week, we really honed in on one person that kind of stood out in that mass evangelism, and it was the first false convert the first false Christian. And we saw attributes of a faith that does not save. This week, we're going to see in a guy who's referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch, attributes of a faith that absolutely does save. So we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Y'all with me? Say, I am. We're going to stop along the way, and I think we're going to end up in a good place today. I really hope today, man... I'm going to teach on a subject today that I think is going to bring so much clarity to so many people. Every time I preach on this subject, we'll get a little deep in the weeds, use some big words and stuff, but it just helps so many people, so it's going to be great. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. We're introduced to someone here that's very significant. If you've been in church for any amount of time, typically when a church has like a spontaneous baptism service, we hear this guy mentioned, the Ethiopian eunuch. For lack of a better way of putting it, this guy is basically the CFO of the kingdom of Ethiopia, the chief financial officer and a chamberlain for the queen, as he's been referred to. And what we're going to see as we make our way through this passage all the way to verse 40 is, we're going to see that this Ethiopian eunuch, though he has riches, he's finding no fulfillment in them. Though he's got all these titles, he has no fulfillment. Though he's following religion, he finds no fulfillment in it. As the same as every single person that tries to find their fulfillment in riches, in titles, in in religion, in anything other than Jesus, what we're going to see in the Ethiopian eunuch is he feels completely empty because that's what religion and that's what chasing the world does. It leaves you empty and it doesn't satisfy anyone. The spoiler alert today, I'll tell you just right out the gate if you don't know the story, 
this guy doesn't need more money. He doesn't need more recognition. He doesn't need more religion and rules to follow. What this guy needs is what he's going to get, and that is he needs Jesus. Amen, Rev Church. Now, the beginning verses of this passage are very important because as we really unpacked last week that the gospel is for everyone, what we see in these first few verses is the gospel is continuing to tear down barriers. In this instance, we see racial barriers being torn down, religious barriers being torn down, cultural barriers. Uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, the Great Commission, uh, the, the, the mission and the commandment that Jesus gave to his church corporately and individually to fulfill that we really hang our hat on as Christians, like this is our mission in this world. It's known as the Great Commission. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Fun fact, the word for witnesses in the Greek here is the same place where we get the word martyr. It means a life that is completely sold out to the gospel. You will be my witnesses in, and he names four different areas geographically, okay? And this translates into four different people groups, and it's coming to completion in this passage. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One commentator gave the book of Acts the title of From Jerusalem to Rome because what we see in the book of Acts is the completion of what we just read, the Great Commission. The first group geographically that Jesus talks about is in Jerusalem. And in chapters 1 through 7, we've seen, and we've talked about this at length, the pure Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem, some of them accept Christ and get the gospel. The second group geographically is Judea. And again, chapters 1 through 7, we've seen what we referred to several weeks ago as the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews get saved as a result, the Judea crowd. The third group we talked about last week, uh, geographically, it's Samaria, if you remember the map, or the Samaritans, and that was in chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And if you remember last week, that's the half-breed Jews. They got a little bit of Judaism in them, but they're half-breeds, as they're referred to. Well, now the fourth group is being reached. The ends of the earth people are being reached because we see an Ethiopian eunuch being reached. Here is the completion, if you will, of the Great Commission, because this Ethiopian eunuch has no ties to Judaism. Yes, he's here reading scripture and stuff like that, but he's from a completely pagan place. He has a different religion where he's from that everyone followed. He's knee-deep in it, too. Uh, in Ethiopia, they believed that the pharaoh, who was the king, was the reincarnation of the sun god, and that administrative duties were below the sun god. So that's why it says Candace, or it was most likely pharaoh's mother, the queen, uh, was the one who really did all of the administrative things, and that's what this eunuch would help with. Uh, the eunuch was uh, emasculated, and so he had been castrated because typically the only men that were allowed to work with the queen or the concubines or the wives of Pharaoh were men that had been castrated and were uh, eunuchs. He's a different race. 
The word Ethiopian actually means burnt face. So here we see Philip, who's a full-blooded Hellenistic Jew, reaching out to a black man that's from Ethiopia. He's from a completely different culture, a completely godless culture, uh, not to be gross, but once again, the eunuch, uh, his situation is uh, he's been castrated. He's literally incomplete. He's not enough. He can't multiply. And eunuchs would be denied being able to even convert to Judaism. In Deuteronomy 21, this is one of the red face Bible verses, not red letter, red face. Uh, this is it right here. It kind of makes you blush a little. Any man that castrates himself can't even come into the temple. Is that a little awkward up in here, y'all? Everybody say, awkward. The Bible says that. Ah. So don't miss this, y'all. This Ethiopian eunuch couldn't even go inside the temple. He is that guy so to speak. He's the guy that nobody is going to even try to reach out to. Nobody even wants to be around. Nobody would give even a chance of knowing God because of his situation and his condition. This is the fulfillment of Jesus coming to fulfill the law and through faith, anyone can be saved. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 puts it this way, and this is significant for us because we can identify with this guy unless you're a pure-blooded Jew or even a half-breed Jew. You probably have no ties to Judaism, most likely whatsoever, if you do. It's very little if you do like 23 and me because we're all Heinz 57s in, in America. Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's us, are heirs together with Israel, the Jews, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's continue. Continues. Y'all still with me? Say aye. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading, Philip asked. How can I, uh, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Notice the preparation for this evangelistic encounter. Notice how God prepared not only the eunuch, but he also prepares Philip. Philip, if you read over this passage and the previous couple of chapters, it's very clear that his humility has been greatly tested. We've talked about humility at length the last several weeks. Here God is once again in this passage, okay? Here's, here's the chronological order of events for Philip. 
He's, he's nominated to be a deacon, and he's a deacon. He becomes a deacon of a successful widow's ministry in the large city of Jerusalem. He's a big dog in the church in Jerusalem. God says, pick up and leave and go to Samaria to reach people you most likely don't like, those half-breed Samaritans. So Philip does it. He's obedient. He goes to a big city in Samaria where there's a lot of people. He gets to preach to hundreds, if not thousands of people, and there's revival breaking out, and the Holy Spirit's falling on people, and people are getting baptized, and they're getting saved. In other words, Philip has built a successful evangelistic ministry in a large city in Samaria, and then God tests his humility once again. Hey, leave that, and now go to what the Scripture refers to as a desert road. We can identify with it in Crossville, because what he means in the Greek is a road that most people don't travel on a dirt road where you may run into somebody, you may not. And Philip is obedient. He's obedient. His humility shows through. When the Holy Spirit, notice, when the Holy Spirit tells Philip to move, he doesn't just walk, he runs. Y'all see that? Everybody with me say amen. He takes off running. The Holy Spirit says do this. He doesn't do what I struggle with and come up with excuses and justifications for why I don't share the gospel with people, why I don't love on people, why I'm not involved in church, why I'm not this, why I'm not that. No, when the Holy Spirit says move, Philip takes off and runs. Church, God uses people that run when the Holy Spirit says go. God uses people that are humble enough to do that. Amen, Rev Church? Philip's just a servant doing what the Spirit tells him to do. I've told you guys that humility is very important at our church. And, uh, you know, we found over nine years, you know, this, this sanctuary is multi-use. Most of y'all know that. It's used for students and Rev Young Adults. And Rev Ladies and Rev Men were in here yesterday meeting. And uh, then we have church on Sundays. And uh, what we've done for nine years is we've had to stack chairs and unstack chairs and put them out and put them up. And y'all, chairs are a pain in the butt. Can I get a witness from anybody? Say amen. Okay, the people that are saying amen the loudest are the ones that move them, okay, y'all? And what we found in nine years in moving chairs is, and this is no joke, this is totally true with us, that if someone is going to be a leader at Revolution Church, one of the litmus tests is, are you willing to move chairs? I'm serious, y'all, because if you ain't willing to move chairs, if you're not willing to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do like Philip, no, no, no. I want to be on the platform singing the solo. No, first God's going to have you move chairs. I remember I had an employee, and one time we were, well, let me say it this way. I know a pastor that had an employee, okay, that worked for him, and uh, this pastor was moving chairs and asking the employee that he had to move chairs with him. And this employee looked at him and said, hey, that's, that's, that's not my job description, to move chairs. And then, if I recall correctly, the pastor told me that he then looked at that employee and said, well, I guess you don't have a job here anymore. Let's figure out your exit strategy. Because I'm not called to be a preacher first. I'm called to serve God. And this is what we see in Philip. 
the preparation, the humility. And from this, we get the best example of one-on-one evangelism that I believe there is in the New Testament. God also, notice, he prepares the eunuch. The eunuch, his ears are open and his heart was ready for the gospel. Philip doesn't go up to him, beating him over the head with a Bible. He doesn't go up to him and put a lighter under his chin and light it and say, it's hot in hell, baby, come on home. You know what I mean? Philip doesn't go up to him and say, you better get with the Lord or drive a Ford. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't do that. In other words, Philip is following the Spirit's leading and he recognizes that this man is ready to harvest. He's not going to repel this man further or cause this man to be more staunch and concrete in his beliefs that are anti-God or his lostness, this is the right moment for him to share the gospel with him. He asks questions. He's sensitive. He's nice. Right, Pastor Brandon? He's kind to this guy. Like he's, he's got ears that are open and a heart that was ready. And the circumstances gave Philip an opportunity to share the gospel. And that's what Philip does. Now let's see the response to the gospel that Philip shares. Watch what happens. As they traveled along the the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? So this man has repented put his faith in Christ. He's responded to the gospel in a positive way and immediately his thought process, now I need to be obedient. I need to get baptized. He says, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Can I point something out to you guys? You got time, say amen. You do, I know you're stuck. Okay, so... I love that the only motivation Philip has is for this guy to get saved. Can I just say that? This guy is very politically important and connected. He's very wealthy. He has a chariot that's his own. He owns a copy of the Bible, which was extreme, cost a fortune back in these days. And, and Philip, as soon as this guy gets saved and baptized, he disappears. In other words, I think the church has got some brokenness in this area. When they come up out of the water, Philip doesn't go, hey, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, now that you've been saved, you know we're uh, doing a building program. (laughs) Give a little cheddar cheese, you know, to the building program, you know. Can you get me connected? I just love that. That really ministered to me where our church is at right now because there's no manipulation. There's no secondary motives. It's just, man, I just want you to get saved. And then he disappears. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled around preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Ethiopian eunuch's response was obedience. He puts his faith in Christ. He repents. He's saved by faith, and then his thought process goes immediately to, now I need to be baptized. Let's spend some time talking about baptism. 
give me about five or ten minutes to just give you guys some theological viewpoints on baptism that can hopefully clarify any confusion you've ever had. I know that this church is like every other church. Again, Heinz 57, we have people from all different types of backgrounds that believe all different types of things about baptism. If you study scripture, and I've got a couple of things for the screen, you can take pictures of it uh, because it'll really help you, I think. Uh, There are seven types of baptism that are mentioned in scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's what's called the baptism of Moses. And I don't have time to get into every one of these. We're going to hone in on the last one. That is the one that is taking place with the Ethiopian eunuch. So baptism of Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, the baptism of John, Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of fire, Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, the baptism of the cross, Mark chapter 10. All those are very distinct, but the one that we're dealing with here is what's known as the baptism of believers. And this started back in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus was quoted as saying this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, preach the gospel, get people saved. Then he says, Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice the order that Jesus points out. You get saved and then you get baptized. That's important, and I'll point out why here in just a second. You don't get baptized and then get saved. You get saved, then get baptized. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Ever since Jesus spoke these words, Christians have been baptized in lakes, in creeks, in oceans, in rivers, in swimming pools, in jacuzzis. I can remember when we first started the church, the first baptism we ever did, the first couple, was in a redneck swimming pool. Y'all know what a redneck swimming pool is? Raise your hand. It's when you put a tarp in the back of a pickup truck and you fill it up with water. And we had guys fighting about whose truck got to be used for baptism. It was awesome. Baptized like 100 people one day, like in the back of a pickup truck, y'all. It was crazy down at the movie theater. (laughs) Bathtubs. We use cow troughs now when we do the big baptisms. Uh, we, we, We do the heated baptistry like for... You know, people that maybe are more sensitive, but, you know, if you're young, you're going to get dipped in ice-cold water in those cow troughs up here. Anybody done it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? And we have them up here. Like at Easter, we had that one right here, and then we had the other cow troughs, right, for mass baptisms. It's not important what it is. It's a bathtub, whatever. The point is obedience to Jesus and being baptized. There's several different views on baptism. And I'm going to teach you what we believe at this church. And we're going to talk about what some different denominations believe that I believe is wrong. And you may not line up with me on this, so this isn't something that we need to like go you know, UFC in the parking lot over. But, uh, but there's what's known as hyper-dispensationalism. I've got this for the screen. Everybody say hyper-dispensationalism, okay, one, two, three, hyper-dispensationalism. Y'all are theologians, man, listen to y'all. Hyper-dispensationalism is basically the belief that you don't need to be baptized after you're saved. This was made very popular by the Quakers. 
Uh, the most significant figure in history that made this popular was a man by the name of William Booth. It may sound familiar. He started the Salvation Army. Now, he had good reason for this because at the time, the Catholic Church was blowing and going, and he believed that too many people depended on the sacraments for their salvation. In other words, communion saves me, confession saves me, uh, baptism saves me. So he started teaching, we're not going to do baptisms at all. Nobody is going to be baptized, hyper-dispensational. The exact opposite of that is what's known as baptismal regeneration. Everybody say baptismal regeneration with me. One, two, three. Baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is the belief that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. There's a very heavy influence in Crossville, Tennessee, of the denomination, the Church of Christ. In their doctrine, they have baptismal regeneration. In other words, uh, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's why I think this is such good clarity for you guys. Also, certain sects of Lutheran, Catholics, uh, there's different cults that believe this. Jehovah Witnesses believe this. Uh, Mormons have some really funky views on baptism, but they basically, in a nutshell, believe in baptismal regeneration. They also believe you can baptize like dead people and they can get saved and stuff. But this comes in the form, some of you guys will recognize this, in baby baptism, christenings, different things like that, baptismal regeneration. Uh, it's made popular theologically uh, in culture uh, with some songs and some books. Uh, for instance, there's a secular artist named Carrie Underwood. Does everybody know who Carrie Underwood is? Raise your hand. Yeah, we're close enough to Nashville. Y'all know. She wrote a song once uh, called Something in the Water. Anybody ever heard it? Everybody cranked it up. They were like, yeah, it's about God. It's a secular song. It's on the secular stations. Yeah, horrible theology. You know, the song says there must be something in the water when I got baptized. Something. There's nothing in the water, y'all. There's nothing in the water. It's not some kind of voodoo thing where it's Jesus water that makes the demons bubble up and come out of you and stuff like that. That's not it. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Seriously. So you need to be aware of these things. People that believe in baptismal regeneration will point out a couple of verses of Scripture and take them out of context. Uh, while on the other side of baptismal regeneration, what we believe at the church, there's a lot of evidence for it. But Mark chapter 16 is one of the big ones. Uh, it says this, these are people that say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But it says this, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The A part of that verse sounds pretty convincing. Believe and be baptized, then you'll be saved. But you've got to look at the B part of the verse. Uh, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It does not say whoever does not believe and is not baptized. It's all about belief. Probably the scripture that most baptismal regeneration advocates will quote is Acts 2.37. Uh, we were in the book of Acts. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sounds pretty straightforward in English, doesn't it? you got to get baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. But the problem comes in when you actually study the Greek and you understand what Peter meant. The word for is a Greek word, E-I-S. And what this word means is in order that or because of. Think of it this way. When Peter says this, it's like this. Imagine a soldier has fought a war and that war is now over and we're victorious and that soldier comes home. 
and the president is giving this soldier a medal, and he says, this medal is for bravery. It's not for bravery he's showing in that moment. It's past tense. It's because of something he's already done. Peter is saying, you've put your trust in Jesus. Now you need to be baptized because of that, for that. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So when you read it in context, it actually doesn't mean this. Uh, Some scriptures just to back up uh, what I'm telling you. Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No mention of baptism. There's so many of these scriptures I can't even tell you. John chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Jesus said, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, not whoever believes in him and is saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, one of the clearest scriptures we have, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, for it is a gift of God. It does not say, for by grace you've been saved through faith, plus you were baptized. Uh, there are certain circumstances uh, where people can't be baptized. They're sick, they're on their deathbed, uh, and so Clearly, baptism doesn't save certain people. We got one example in Scripture where Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's a thief next to him that looks at him. He's hanging on the cross too. They're both about to die. He says, hey, Jesus, remember me when we're in paradise. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, you're going to be in paradise with me. You're going to heaven with me today. No mention whatsoever that this man ever got baptized. But we know based on the words of Jesus, he was saved. He did go to heaven. So there are those deathbed confessions, someone's sick, someone's elderly, and they can't climb into a baptistry or something like that. Uh, It doesn't mean that they're going to hell. Several times in Scripture, uh, almost always, baptisms are public kind of keeps in mind the whole thing where Jesus said, confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. In this instance, it's not super public, but there is at least a driver that is witness to this. Remember, he said he told the driver to stop. So there's at least one witness in every single account of baptism we have in the New Testament, and most of them are mass baptisms where there's lots of people. That's why at this church, if you call us and say, hey, can I go get baptized privately in my pool at home with nobody there? We'll say, nope. Gotta be somebody there because it's meant to be public. It's meant to be a public profession. And if you're not willing to go public with baptism, you're probably not going to be public in your faith anyway. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So that's what we believe about baptism. There's three different ways to do baptism. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. There's aspersion. Everybody say aspersion. One, two, three. Aspersion. That's the sprinkling of water on the head. And sometimes I wish I believed that because it'd be a lot easier, you know. There's also effusion. Everybody say effusion. One, two, three. Effusion. That is the pouring of water over the head. Again, big denominations that believe that, Methodist, Presbyterian. Maybe you were in here, you were baptized that way after you were saved. That's totally cool. At this church, we believe in what's known as immersion. Everybody say immersion. One, two, three. Immersion, okay? That means you go completely under the water and you are baptized. And the reason we believe that is because there's really three different words for baptism in the New Testament, and they all mean some form of to immerse, to dip, or to sink. The word baptism that's used in this scripture with the Ethiopian eunuch actually is the same Greek word that's used in Luke eleven thirty eight, 38, Mark 7, 3, where it says Jesus washed his hand, baptizo. I just always think of my big fat Greek wedding when I say that, like baptizo from the word, I don't know, I love, I love that movie. Anybody else like that movie? Okay. So, so, uh, so it's the same word, Jesus washed, baptizo, 
dipped his hands into a basin of water and completely immersed his hands. So being baptized, we believe at this church is, as we've said before, you get dunked completely. Man, there's a lot of great things that you can dunk, isn't there, Ref Church? Who likes Dunkin' Donuts? Anybody with me? Amen. The new one opened up, man. That's awesome. Love Dunkin' things, man. Tortilla chips and cheese dip. Amen, y'all. Nobody? Amen, y'all. White cheese dip, generally. She's from California. She only likes the orange cheese dip. We're praying she gets saved. It's all good. It's white cheese dip. I love going to Burger King and getting those like French toast sticks and dipping them in syrup. Amen, y'all. So, somebody's having a conniption. It's good. It's that good. I'm with you, bro. Whoever did that? So we believe baptism at this church is something that's incredible like tortilla chips and cheese dip. It's awesome. What we believe at this church is is like baptism for us is the church bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. Because the scripture tells us when someone gets saved and makes a profession of faith that they're saved in that moment when they profess Christ, usually that's more private. But when that happens, the angels have a party up in heaven. Well, then God says, I want you to go public with your faith in baptism. And we believe that's when us as the church gets to have our own party for the people that have already made a profession of faith. In other words, bringing a little bit of heaven down to earth. Does that make sense to everybody? This Ethiopian eunuch's response is telling of his salvation story. And I just want to be obedient. Get the lights, guys. I don't need anybody to play or nothing. I'm just going to turn the lights out. For you guys that were here last Easter, you know this story. Not this past Easter, but over a year ago, you know this story. Uh, but for you guys that have come since then, which is a lot of people, you don't know my baptism story. I got saved when I was 18 years old, y'all. And God just invaded my life, and the Holy Spirit filled me, and my life was 180, man, went 180. And I started living for God when I was 18 years old. But when I got saved when I was 18, I didn't get baptized. And the reason was, is because when I was six years old, or seven, I said a prayer to Vacation Bible School, and I got baptized at Wallace Memorial Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. So when I was 18 and I got saved, for 22 years, I told myself, well, maybe, maybe I got saved when I was six, and I, I just was backslid till I was 18. Maybe I really put my faith in God when I was six. So I've been baptized. But remember the order? Remember the order? You get saved, then you're baptized. For 22 years, I struggled, and especially when I became a pastor, because I started to feel like a hypocrite because I stood up here and told you guys, you need to get baptized if you've been saved. All you did was take a bath. You've heard all the preachers say that. When you were young, if you didn't really mean it, all you did was take a bath. That didn't do nothing for you. You really need to get saved and get baptized because you've got to get saved and baptized. The order is important. It's very important. So I really struggled with like, okay, what is my story here? I've told my testimony a couple different ways, right? 
Did I get saved when I was six and backslide and rededicate my life when I was 18 and really start living for God? Or was the gospel seed kind of planted in me at six years old and then the harvest happened at 18 years old and that's really when I got saved? And, and I'll be honest, the last, well, not, not the last year, but up until about a year ago, for about two or three years, I really struggled through that. I studied scripture on it and, and here's what I found when I studied scripture. When I tried to tell myself I got saved when I was six, but didn't follow God till I was 18, the problem I had was I could find absolutely zero scriptures to support that story. None. You will not find one person in the scripture who gets saved and their life is not radically changed. So I had this realization about a year, year and a half ago that, man, I, I've never been properly baptized. And it was eating at me, and it was eating at me, and it was eating at me. And so I started feeling like, man, I'm supposed to get dunked. I'm supposed to get baptized. So originally, I thought like, well, maybe I can just get baptized when we go on vacation at the beach, and I'll have, you know, Brooke do it with just the kids. And, you know, because, cause, man, I had a lot of hang-ups. I was like, I can't get baptized at church. I can't. I get why y'all get freaked out about it. When you're older, when you, when you got baptized when you were younger, you live in a small town, everybody knows you, you're worried. What's my parents going to think? I mean, you can imagine me being a pastor. I can't get baptized. People are going to think I wasn't saved the whole time during the church. And people, more people already hate me than love me in Crossville. So like, people are really going to hone in on that and be like, we told you. He's a heretic. He's not real. And he just now got baptized. The baptismal regeneration people are really going to hone in on that. You know what I mean? So I was really like, oh, gosh, I can't do that. So I tried to figure out a way to do it. Maybe the bathtub at home. Get a kid pool for the backyard or something. You know what I mean? God's like, no, you got to go public. And so I met with the elders. I met with the staff. I told them how I felt God was leading me. And I was like, man, you know. I went to the elders first, honestly, and said, if you guys tell me not to do this, then I won't, hoping they would say don't, you know? And they were like, no, 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 you need to do it. Because I wanted to, I was asking them questions like, do you think this will confuse the church? Will people be freaked out about it? Will, will people think I'm not saved? It's interesting, since I was obedient in this, because you know where this is going, uh, our church has exploded. People getting baptized, saved left and right. We got three services, going to start a fourth probably by the end of the year. It's just crazy what's happened. But I was freaked out, right? Staff was behind it. And so at one of our staff lunches, because I just couldn't do it, we had too many services. I couldn't decide. Like if I got baptized in this service and not another service, they'd think I hate them. You know what I mean? And they'd think y'all are my favorites. You guys are. Don't worry. You know? I love y'all more. So at one of our staff lunches, this is a picture of what I did there. And this was about a year ago, probably 14, 15 months ago, February last year. And uh, that's my wife, Brooke, who baptized me. Uh, it was pretty cool because when I started sharing my story with the staff, I convicted a couple of other people, uh, Pastor Brandon and uh, Jeff, who is our Rev Men's minister. Um, they both got baptized on the same day as me because they were like, same story, man. I was young, thought I got saved, been praying about it. feel like I really got saved later in life. And uh, all of our wives baptized us, and we're all alive. They didn't drown any of us. Kayla, yeah, my wife Brooke, Annette. So our marriages must be kind of okay, right? So 
And I got baptized, finally. It took me 22 years, 23 years, something. I think I was 41, I was 18 when I really got saved, so 23 years. I think back to that, and I'm glad God did it the way he did it because so many people have found freedom in me sharing my testimony, and I've had so many people be like, man, that was me. Man, the Lord really spoke to me through you because I, I thought I got saved when I was a kid, but I didn't. But oh, I wish I would have done. I wish I'd been like the Ethiopian eunuch. I wish when I first got really saved, I, I would have just been thinking, obedience, what do I need to do now? Because the Ethiopian eunuch, he sees the water, and he says, hey, look, there's water right here, Philip. What's keeping me from getting baptized now? Why don't I do it now? kind of nice, y'all. <laughs> I don't know why some of y'all are so freaked out. You know? Why are you running from it? Watch this. I'm alive. Can I still be y'all's pastor? Well, well, will you guys still be my friend? Some of you guys, man, in here, listen. Your next step with God might be and could be obedience through baptism. And the reason, and I'm not saying there's some kind of weird voodoo thing about baptism, I'm just saying the reason you haven't been able to move on, you've been held up, and you haven't found freedom is because you won't take your next step. We've mentioned baptism in every scripture we've read for like the past month, ever since we've been back in the book of Acts after Easter. Next week, you're going to hear about it again. We're not doing baptism today, no spontaneous. I don't want anybody to feel like they're manipulated. But I will say, some of you guys need to go straight to the kiosk after service. You need to sign up for baptism. And next week when we do baptism, we've already got five that are being baptized. Some of y'all just need to be obedient. I love that we're doing it that way because you're going to have to think about it all week. And we'll know if it's real. You'll know if it's real. God will know if it's real. The response of the Ethiopian eunuch. How can I be obedient to God? Not, what's everybody going to think of me? Oh, if people in Crossville see my picture on Facebook, what are they going to think? I get it. I've been in ministry and I've been a pastor for 15 years. 
You think I enjoyed answering all those phone calls from pastor buddies that were like, what happened, Josh? Did you get saved? You know what I'm saying? I get it. But what's more important? Your image, your insecurities, or your obedience to God? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for every single person in here. God, I just pray you lead and guide your people and that your Holy Spirit gives them the strength to be obedient to do whatever it is you're leading them to do. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes. 